Unfriending used to be harder. It didn't come at the click of a button or in a moment of frustration deleting someone from your Facebook page. Unfriending sometimes happened in a meeting, a phone call, a terse conversation. It was 1996 and I had lost a friend. I had been unfriended. And it hurt. I didn't know what to do. I called my father. I told him the situation as best I could. I tried to be fair to not only my perspective, but the perspective of the other person. I found it difficult not to whine. I was hurting. I remember my father's response, and I've thought about it often in the intervening years. He said, well, people are simply complex. And then he paused. Welcome to the Love First Podcast. I am so thankful that you have joined us for this series on friendship. We've looked at this for a few weeks now and trying to imagine together what does it look like, not just to be friends, but to be friends in the way that Jesus intended. Our key passage that we've been kind of rotating around is John 15, 15, where Jesus says, I no longer call you servants. Because a servant doesn't know what his master is doing. But I've called you friends because everything that I received from the Father, I have revealed to you. As we continue this episode on friendship, we're going to ask, how do we heal when a friendship has been wounded? If this is your first time with the Love First podcast, our purpose is to catalyze courageous conversations to revolutionize the way we love each other. And if you're returning, thank you for liking, subscribing, and sharing. Simply complex? I thought, well, first of all, is that a thing? Can you be simple and complex at the same time? Well, of course, in my cognitive mind, I knew that was the case. Of course it is. Systems are complex. Solar system, electronic systems, data systems, transportation systems, neurological systems. I know cognitively that systems are complex and and that complexity is a real thing. But psychologists tell us that we drive towards simplicity. We want to take whatever is complex and get it to the most simple category or the most simple definition because our minds drive for simplicity. What my dad was trying to help me understand was, of course you're hurt. You've been unfriended. He didn't use those terms, but I know what it means now. But why it happened? That's very complex. He went on to say that a lot of times our behavior is simple. What we did, what we said, not hard to diagnose. But why we did it? Well, that could take generations. So how do we understand healing wounded relationships when in the midst of it all, there may be simple behavior and very complex concerns that somehow are behind the behavior. 
Some researchers in Europe came up with a term that I've begun to like. It's simplexity. Simplexity, the combination of simple and complex. The idea being that ultimately when you see something that is simple, it is tied to complex systems. And if you track them out far enough, what you begin to realize is you can't have what's in front of you by dissecting it. You can't actually take what is right there, the simplest thing, whether it be a meal, whether it be a block of wood, or whether it be a friend. You can't actually know what it is until you eventually get to the untrackable systems that go back into time and space, where ultimately I just have to accept that complexity is a part of simplicity. And that's why they came up with the term simplexity. When we look at Scripture, we see this all over the relationships that Jesus navigated. We see it in the stories in the first part of our Bible where some of the characters, though heroic, are so complex. Their stories are complex enough that we know to edit them. We know that some of this is not safe for vacation Bible school. We know that sometimes if we were to preach on stories, even in the very first book of Genesis, we'd have to be very careful of the wording we use. Simple yet complex. When we think about friendships, we want to remember that Aristotle kind of described it this way. He said friendships kind of fall out into three buckets, and they're all good, and they're all friends. He said there's friends that are useful, and you know, this is kind of like that person in my uh, military unit, or the person on my athletic team, or the person that I work with, where the reason we're together is because we have a mission to accomplish, and we're useful to each other in the mission. In no way does that denigrate another person, nor does it suggest that we don't trust their character or care about their character. It just means that what brought us together was usefulness. He says a second bucket could be called pleasure. And we reminded ourselves, don't quickly wander away to immorality. Pleasure can be wonderful and pleasure can be holy. I think about the Passion Conference that is hosted every year in Atlanta where thousands of people from all over the world come together to hear the Word of God preached and to praise together and to make connections. But you have to know, as exciting and as pleasurable as that all is, after three or four days, everybody's going to go home. And so rather than going home with 20,000 friends, I might actually just go back with the friends I came with. It was pleasurable. It was wonderful. And I don't even think anyone meant me any ill harm. It just means that what brought us together was going to be something we could enjoy together. But then Aristotle challenges the concept of friendship and says, but now let's think of something that he termed complete friendship. And he said, obviously, those first two buckets they could be filled to overflowing throughout the course of your life. People that are useful to you and you are useful to them. People with whom you find pleasure and they find pleasure with you. But what he called complete friendship, he suggested, you're not going to have very many. It could be a handful. In fact, later Cicero, reflecting back on Aristotle, said, it might just be one. 
don't be surprised. If those that are in the complete friendship, what, what was described as the virtue friendship, a friendship not first and foremost rooted in usefulness or pleasure, though that might be the gateway into a virtue friendship, a virtue friendship is where I see in another person the virtue in them and I know them for who they are, not for what they do or do not do. But they see the virtue in me. And they know me for who I am, not a role I play or a title or how I was useful or pleasurable at some point in life. They actually know us. And I think what most of us realize is we understand the first two buckets, we accept the first two buckets, but we're empty without that third bucket. It was Aristotle who said, who would want to live without friends? And he didn't just mean pleasurable or useful. We want someone that knows us and loves us. We want someone who puts understandingness above a green with us. We want someone who will hang in there with us through our not so great days. And we want someone who will truly rejoice with us without jealousy on our best days. We want complete friends. It's interesting that this is how Jesus picks up that word friendship and applies it in John 15. Jesus says, you understand how I'm defining friendship is the difference between not being known and being known. He knew his disciples. They were useful most of the time. They were pleasurable some of the time. And they weren't always that great of friends. In fact, John 15 is spoken right before Jesus gets arrested, and we know they're not going to be very good friends in such a short interval of time. And yet Jesus said, I call you friends because we know each other. So we might think, well, how would I maintain good, useful friendships in a really holy and equitable way? How would I maintain pleasurable friendships in a really moral and ethical way? Well, scholars that study friendships suggest that disposition, meaning my disposition toward others, will have a governing factor on how I look at those relationships. How do I be in a relationship that is useful without using someone else to their detriment? How do I enjoy a pleasurable relationship without using the pleasure to entice or be enticed into something that is detrimental to each other, to society, to our other relationships, or a relationship with God? So scholars say, well, disposition is a factor. One of the reasons that Jesus was such a great friend is because Jesus himself had a disposition that thought of the good of others, not just the good of himself. The apostle Paul says about Timothy, you got to understand, this guy thinks of others before himself. And Paul even maybe a little bit of hyperbole. He said, I don't know anyone else like him. I don't have anyone else like him. Paul encouraged the churches, 
put your put others' interests above yourself. He encouraged the Roman church, outdo one another in showing honor to each other. So there is a disposition that guards friendships that are in the first two buckets, where both pleasure and usefulness remain beneficial, not detrimental. But would not disposition also be a factor in the success of virtuous friendships? About a month ago, we had on the podcast Dr. Everett Worthington. He spoke to us about forgiveness, and in his discussions on the two-part series that he did, which you can look up in our archives, he talked about humility in relationship to forgiveness. The disposition of humility is necessary for the actions of forgiveness. So the disposition in a virtuous relationship would perhaps begin with humility. The idea that what I am seeing in someone else, they might also be seeing in me. As much as I may be frustrated with what I assume to be a deficit in them, so they may all, all also, whether they say it or not, be very frustrated with the deficit that they assume, perceive, or in actuality see and experience in me. So humility basically is the golden rule. It's, you know, look at others, think about others, judge others, imagine others, participate in the lives of others the way you would want them to participate in your life. The Apostle Paul encourages in Romans chapter 2, be very slow to judge. Because in the very things you judge someone else, they very well may be able to flip the script and say, but hey, do you not see this in yourself? This leans into the famous uh, teaching of Jesus about the speck and the beam. He says, you know, it might be tough to, to, to get a speck out of somebody else's eye when you've got a beam in your own eye. In actuality, we don't even see the beam. It's almost always someone else who sees the beam. And so Aristotle encourages us, in a virtual relationship, make sure that you're cultivating the relationship in such a way that if someone did see a speck in your eye, you would trust them to help with it. But if someone suggests that there's a beam in your eye, you wouldn't get defensive and readily deny it. Well, what do we do with people that aren't very good friends to us. What do we do when a friend turns on us? What do we do when a friendship we thought was deep turns out to be shallow? A friendship we thought we could trust turns out to perhaps be untrustworthy. Some suggest, well, maybe it's like the, 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 the parable of the soils. Where Jesus taught in Matthew chapter 13 that, you know, the truth is, is that People are like soils. And some people are kind of like that pathway where you could put the seeds of friendship out there, but very quickly the enemy comes and takes them away. Or maybe kind of shallow soil where the seeds of friendship are planted and they, they spring up very quickly, but then they wilt with the ongoing difficulty, challenge, opportunity that true friendship brings. Some might say, well, I don't know, maybe it's like the thorny, where the, the, the thistles are, where the seeds were planted alongside the thorns. And yes, 
The thorns grew, but so also did the seeds of friendship. But over time, the worries of the world and the distractions and the pressures of friendship began to choke out the friendship and ultimately it died off. But maybe Jesus would say, hey, you know, maybe one in four, maybe one in four people that you reach out to, maybe they'll be good soil. And maybe what we would think is we're spending our whole lives looking for a good soil friend. You do understand that by saying that, we're assuming that we're not the first three. That someone hasn't experienced us as kind of a pathway or shallow rocky soil or a garden that needs some good weeding. You see, when we assume that we're really great at being friends and we're good friendship soil, and if other people would just get on board, everything would be better. We don't have the disposition of humility. Therefore, it's hard for us to see good soil in another even when it's present. So what makes this difficult? What makes it hard for us to cultivate good soil within us and to cultivate the vision to see good soil in someone else? Well, quite often we judge soil by whether or not they made us feel good. If they wounded us, we assume it's bad soil. Well, if Aristotle was on the podcast, he might say, well, hey, 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 wait a minute. Maybe you are judging them according to the bucket of pleasure. Did you just enjoy being around them? Or were you looking for true friendship? And we might say, Aristotle, we didn't invite you into this conversation. <laughs> we might say, well, you know, I thought I had a friend, but they didn't come through for me. And Aristotle might pop back in. We're trying to find the mute button on Zoom to keep Aristotle out of the conversation. He might say, oh, so were you looking for just a useful friend? Man, well, maybe so. So humility plays such a role in evaluating our disposition. Are we imagining that we are fundamentally better soil than others and we're spending our whole lives looking for someone that's just as good as we are? Well, Jesus is never muted in this conversation if he can help it. And Jesus would say, well, you do realize that the people I called friends were about to not be very useful or pleasurable. The people that I called friends were about to deny me. You remember the text in Mark 14 where it says, all of them deserted him and fled? You remember the text in Luke 23 where when Peter calls down curses on the third denial of Jesus, Luke records that Jesus looked right at him. It's so heartbreaking for both Jesus and Peter to realize that in Peter's lowest moment in the Gospels, at least, perhaps his lowest moment in life, that the friend he wounded was not only in earshot, but was looking right at him when he did it. Jesus might say to us, when you're looking at ones you would be willing to call friends, 
that disposition of humility isn't just a serious look at you, but it's also an examination of your expectations of what your role in the friendship is. How do you navigate the friendship? Do you believe that primarily the friendship exists to make you feel better or to be useful to you? Well, maybe then that's not true friendship yet. Or are you thinking that the job of that friend is to make you feel good about how good a friend you are? Rather than for the both of you to serve in each other's life in a virtuous way to help each other become the fullest person flourishing in this world the way that God desires. So how do we examine the role that friendship has played so far? So one question we might have is, how do we navigate the simplexity of friendship? How do we navigate the wound, which in this case I'm calling simple, the actual wound itself and the complexity of how the wound came about and how we choose to try to heal the wound. Uh, on my right shin, about halfway down, I have a curious scar. Now bear in mind, I've got scars all over my body. I've had over 265 stitches over the course of my life. The first set of stitches came right here on my lip when I was seven years old. We were playing tag in Portland, Oregon, where I grew up, and I ran across an empty boat trailer, slipped on a roller, fell into the gravel, and split my lip open. Those were my first nine stitches in the ensuing years. It included running through a plate glass window. It, in, it has included cutting myself in work projects, 265 stitches and counting. But some of my stitches, in fact, the longest scars on my body weren't put there by accident. The longest scars on my body that included the most stitches were actually put there by a surgeon. The surgeon created the incision, the wound, but the surgeon was also the healer who repaired the wound. So what I want you to think about is this. A virtuous friend is committed to the relationship, not just to wound, perhaps like a surgeon, but also to stick around and participate in the healing. The Proverbs enlightens us and says, hey, the wound of a friend could be like compared to the kiss of love, right? That a wound of a friend isn't bad, just like the wound of the surgeon wasn't bad. But that doesn't mean the wound didn't hurt, and that does not mean that the wound didn't need to be healed. You see, if the surgeon only wounded, I wouldn't be here. The surgeon stuck around for the healing. In the case of Jesus, is it not true that he wounded Peter? He told Peter he would deny him. Peter said, no, I won't. Jesus said, yes, you will. And he did. And it was Jesus who challenged Peter and said, hey, are you still satisfied with your definitions of love? 
or do they need to be upgraded? And this is all in John 21 where John records Peter was hurt. Jesus was a true friend, as Aristotle would say, a complete friend, because he did wound Peter, but he wounded him to help him, and Jesus stuck around for the healing. You might remember that before the conversation was over, Jesus spoke about the impact Peter would have in the future, and he challenged him to live into that impact, and it was Peter that the Holy Spirit commissioned on the day of Pentecost to preach that first impactful powerful gospel sermon. It was Peter that was led to the home of the first Gentile convert that we know of in Cornelius. You see, the surgeon wounded, the great physician wounded, but the great physician wasn't just interested in wounding. The great physician stuck around for the healing. You see, we're not complete friends. We're not virtuous friends when all we do is wound. I hear people say sometimes, well, someone had to say it. Uh, or, well, I spoke the truth in love. Well, let me suggest this. If you spoke the truth in love and wounded, and you didn't stick around for the healing, you might need to upgrade your understanding of love. You are not a complete friend, a true friend, if you're satisfied with wounding but not healing. Another powerful example is in the story of Joseph. When we turn back to the book of Genesis, we're near the end. We're in chapter 50. Joseph is healing a broken relationship with his brothers. But look at what he says. He says, so they were afraid in verse 15. They said, what if Joseph holds a grudge against us? What if he pays us back for all the wrongs we did to him? So there's a massive breach in the relationship. This is a broken relationship. And they remember what happened. And they're thinking to themselves, what if he remembers it and holds a grudge? What if the only thing on Joseph's mind is revenge? So they sent word to Joseph saying, your father left these instructions before he died. This is what you're to say to Joseph. I ask you to forgive your brothers the sins and the wrongs they have committed in treating you so badly. Now please forgive the sins of your servants of the God of your father. When their message came to him, Joseph wept. Now I want to stop on this. Joseph wept. That's simple. Why did Joseph weep? That's complex. Do you notice that his brothers imagined they would circumvent to friendship? They created in their minds a story about their brother. He is probably remembering all of our wrongs like a grudge. And he is probably bent on revenge. So rather than actually going to our brother and asking him, rather than going to our brother and humbly approaching the friendship, in this case, among brothers, and saying, 
Can you tell us how you feel? Can you tell us how this impacted you? Can you tell us what you're feeling? They created a narrative that he would remember them as a grudge and that he would be bent on revenge. So they try to leverage the impact of their father. They knew that Joseph had a very special relationship with his father. They knew that he respected his father. So they say, hey, dad said right before he died that, hey, what you really need to do is forgive your brothers. They were attempting to manipulate the relationship, not heal the wound. How does Joseph respond? Joseph wept. His brothers then came to him threw themselves down before him. We're your slaves, he said. But Joseph said to them, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? Now watch the wound, watch the wounding. You intended to harm me. Now how would that feel if you were the brothers? Joseph says, you meant to harm me. He doesn't hold back. You intended to do me wrong. Now, you understand that that's what Proverbs is referring to of the wound of a friend. Joseph doesn't dance around it. He doesn't pretend a wound didn't happen. He doesn't pretend that he's not hurt. In fact, he leans into the wound and says, you intended to harm me. And had had Joseph walked away at that point, His brothers might have thought, well, we had it coming. We had it coming. He's right. Had Joseph walked away, we might think, you bet. I get it. Been there right there with you. If we'd have had tea with Joseph out under a tent in in the late evening of that day, and Joseph says, man, I met with my brothers. How'd it go? Oh, they sent me this story about a dad's dying wish was that I would forgive them, but it's just one more wound. I'm so sick of it. I'm so sick of it. I wept, and I went in there, and I told him, you're right. You did mean to hurt me, and I walked out, and we sip on our tea, and we look at Joseph, and we say, I understand. That's not what happened, is it? What happened? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is being done now in the saving of many lives. So then, don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your children. Now watch this, watch this. Genesis 50, 21, and he reassured them and spoke kindly to them. Isn't that something? You see, Joseph hung around for the healing. He didn't avoid the appropriate wounding, but he understood this isn't a wound like the one I mentioned halfway down my right calf, a curious scar. I was 10 years old. I was living on my grandparents' farm in Colorado. I was in the fourth grade. My grandfather was dying of cancer. My parents uh, allowed me to go and live at my grandfather's 
uh, grandfather and grandmother's farm as my grandfather was dying, and he died later that year. I finished my fourth grade school year there in the same small school that my mom and her siblings went to when they were children. We had seven students in the third and fourth grade combined at the beginning of the semester and only six of us by the end. On my way walking to that schoolhouse that morning, I was on my way down through the pasture, not too far from the corral, and I had to crawl through a barbed wire fence. As I crawled through that barbed wire fence, without even noticing it initially, I caught my right leg on a barb. It was so sharp, it sliced right through my heavy jean pants and into my leg and cut it open. Well, what was I to do? I was halfway to school. I was halfway from the farmhouse. I knew if I went back to the farmhouse that my grandmother would basically tell me to buck it up and get to school. So I made my way to school. By the time I got to school, my pant leg was drenched. I was wearing cowboy boots. My socks were drenched with blood. A teacher came in and what she basically did is bunched it up together and took some tape and taped over the top of the wound. That's why that scar looks curious. The wound was an accident, and I didn't have a surgeon to help with the healing. Some of the scars that we carry from friendship wounds look about like that curious scar. They're not enjoyable, they hurt, and they're not fixable. That curious scar will be with me the rest of my life, just like some of the friendship wounds that I've inflicted and had inflicted on me. But they don't all have to be that way. We have the capacity to live into the story of Jesus and Joseph. We have the capacity to learn. You see, when Joseph's brothers thought about the original wound, their memory of the wound was static. They remembered what happened, they remembered their complicity in the lies. They remembered the lies they told their father, the grief they caused, the shame they carried. But you see, they imagined that Joseph was just as static as their memory. That he's stuck in that wound exactly the same way he always was, so he holds a grudge and he wants revenge. The truth was, Joseph wasn't static. In all the intervening years... Well over a decade, Joseph kept growing. Joseph kept processing. Joseph got closer and closer to the Lord. And so what they discovered was the memory was static, but the person wasn't. You see, one of the reasons that we stay and seek to heal wounded relationships is because people are not static. I've often wondered, where did Joseph learn? What did Joseph think about when he thought about that relationship? How did he learn to reconcile a relationship? How did he learn to stay around for the healing after a great wound? How did he learn to speak kindly to people and reassuring to people who right up to the moment imagined that all he would remember is a grudge and revenge. 
There's a story earlier in the book of Genesis, and it has to do with Joseph's father. Joseph's father, Jacob, had a broken relationship with his brother as well. Twins, always wrestling with each other from the womb. At one point in their relationship, the breach was so severe that the Bible says Esau held a grudge against Jacob and wanted to kill him. They go their separate ways, and they are separated well into their adult life. They marry. They have children. They build their own lives completely separately. But then we find out in Genesis 32 that they're going to have a meeting. Jacob, Joseph's dad, thinks Esau is static. He thinks that Esau will remember nothing but the wound and will carry nothing but a grudge and will seek nothing but revenge. So Jacob begins to try to manipulate the situation. He begins to send gifts. And then over time, he begins to send family members and servants over to meet Esau first. And in the middle of all of that is young Joseph. So there is Joseph with a front row seat to the meeting between siblings who have a wounded and broken relationship. His father trying to manipulate the outcome, imagining Esau as static, having never grown, being bent on revenge because of a grudge. But when Esau shows up, Esau says to his brother, what are all these gifts? What are all these flocks? What is all this about? Are you, are you trying to buy me? Oh, Jacob, that's all in the past. Obviously, you've grown, but so have I. You have families, I have families. You have flocks, I have flocks. I don't need any of those things. What I want, Jacob, is you, not your thing. I don't need a useful Jacob. I don't even need a pleasurable Jacob. I just want Jacob. Jacob is shocked by the encounter. But I often wonder if Joseph thought back, not on his dad, but on his uncle Esau. I wonder how many times he thought back of how his brother, his father, remembered his brother as static vengeful, grudge-holding, only to find out that his brother was kind and reassuring. The Bible doesn't say that Joseph thought about that. It just says that when the time came, Joseph did it. So when we think about friendship and the wounding that takes place around all the issues that we're confronting in society, politics, the church, issues in relationship to justice and race and gender, issues that tend to split families, communities, churches, and nations. We step forward. We have a decision to make. Will we be like, Jake, like Joseph's brothers? who try to manipulate relationships to keep them useful and perhaps pleasurable? Or will we lean into complete friendships where we know humbly that our soil isn't perfect, 
and neither is the soil of our sister or brother in Christ. Will we be like Jacob, who thinks that our brother or sister or friend or neighbor or someone in another political party is static and try to manipulate those relationships just to make them useful or pleasurable? Or will we choose to be like Esau there at the end, who had grown and wanted just a relationship with his brother, as imperfect as he was. Here's our challenge. Will we choose the simplexity of friendship with the wounding and the healing? I want to thank you for joining us for the Love First podcast. My guess is you may have a few curious scars yourself. Those stories shape who we are, but they don't have to control who we become. Let's choose the healing story of Jesus.